Podcast Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Glenn Birnbaum is a CPA with Heinel Bandwork. And Glenn, it has been a little bit since we had a conversation, buddy. How you been? Yeah, it's been a little while. Uh, we've been working away, but it has been a bit of a slow news day. But we sort of been kind of accumulating some some stories, so to speak. And I think we got a fair amount of detail now to, to talk talk about with your listeners. So right on. Looking forward to it, Glenn. All right. So you rambled off about five or six different things that have some pretty impact of what's going on. So which one to start with first, man? You want to well, play? maybe just first, you know, the timing, you know, October 15th is coming up. That's the extended deadline uh, for your personal tax return, your 1040. So we're still working through um, some of those tax returns and people are generally pretty busy right now. The CPA firm is working through some of these complexities, these new rules, whether it be the international rules or the 199A rules and things of that nature. I think there was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about this, that, that there's quite a bit of stress going on at your, your local CPA firm, probably people trying to get, trying to get the work out. So, um, but we, we, we see the end in sight and, you know, October 15th, we can kind of officially put, put things to rest for another year. Um, but yeah, several things have come up and some of this is kind of, you know, it's not as quite as, you know, it's not like new internal revenue code, items or final regulations, but it's, it's some additional guidance that the IRS has put out there. Sometimes this is just in the form of, you know, new instructions, a draft uh, form, um, something called a revenue procedure. And so these aren't, you know, quite as high up on the hierarchy, but they're still, you know, they're coming from the IRS and it's given us a window into, into different things. So maybe one thing to start out with, we would have talked about this, um, Several months ago, in, in particular in the context of like a farm equipment dealership, um, that there's some new interest expense limitations. Now, most of this isn't going to affect, you know, probably the typical farmer. But um, the bottom line is, though, okay, you might have to be limited on your interest expense to 30% of EBITDA or 30% of, inter- of earnings um, before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So this is a you know brand new thing. Hey, you can't automatically just deduct all of your interest. You've got to work through this calculation, 30% of EBITDA. And they said, okay, we're going to give a special exception to uh, farm equipment dealers, also auto dealers. This is really the main, the main one. And if we'll, we'll let you deduct all the interest, but then you, you're going to be ineligible to take bonus depreciation. And that's something where you can write off a lot of the Right of your purchases and there's really no limits on it. So it's kind of a big, big, big issue because it was kind of like, well, if you want to be a car dealer, you're not going to have bonus depreciation basically. Now they just released some new guidance that said, okay, if you pass the 30% test yourself, you know, so if, if you don't have that much interest and you're a farm equipment dealer or an auto dealer, you know, we'll let you be subject to those limits and then you can be subject to them, but then you, you will be able to take bonus depreciation. So it does give some little more flexibility. Now, this was just a proposed regulation. So there's, there's a process for approval on that. And it's technically really under the depreciation regulations. Um, so there's, there's a little more to come on that before it's finalized. But certainly that's good news for auto dealers, farm equipment dealers that, you know, if they don't have as much interest, 
it was kind of all or nothing. In other words, if, if you want to deduct any interest at all, you can't take bonus appreciation. Now you, you're, you're kind of back where, well, if, if I can pass that limit, then I, then I'm okay on bonus. So, so that's one good thing. Um, are you not maybe to go ahead? Are you talking floor plan interest? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, floor plan interest. Yeah. Because most, most auto dealers wouldn't, I mean, you know, we, we have a couple of them, nothing, nothing too significant in our practice, but you know, a lot of times you have a lot of interest expense, maybe right. your profit isn't all that high. Right. So you're almost going to be sure to like fail this test um, almost all the time. Well, the auto dealers lobbied and said, Hey, we want to have like a special exception that we get to deduct the interest. But the caveat was then you, you are able to take bonus depreciation. So that would be more for like interior improvements to a building or, you know, equipment and things, shop equipment, you know, you'd be able to bonus depreciate. So, gotcha. so g- good to see that the IRS is coming a little bit back off of, of what they initially, their, their initial position. And again, this is just proposed. So it'll, there'll be um, some more, you know, comments on this and then they'll finalize it. Um, hopefully they'll finalize it before tax season starts, but we're not sure. Something like this, when it gets to this point, is it is it pretty, I mean, unless there's just some glaring reason why most of the stuff kind of goes down the path that we're talking here? Yeah, you know, this was kind of, to be honest, there was even a little bit of uncertainty about, well, the the, the proposed regulation for depreciation says this, the, the actual, the law that was passed by Congress says this, or, you know, it wasn't even super clear how you'd interpret this, so... It, it, it gives some guidance to people, but yeah, I don't, but there is a comment period. Uh, the comment period is right now. And so people are, you know, I'm sure auto dealers are writing letters and I think they may want to have it be like an annual election, you know, every year you could either do it or not. So there, there could be a little bit more on it, but I think generally auto dealers are, are, are happier with, with the outcome at this point. Right on. Sounds like a, I mean, it sounds like a way better deal. You kind of get the best of both yeah. worlds. Yeah, if if you really don't use that much floor plan interest, then you can still still get both. So, yep. right on. So that's right. one thing. Uh, that's definitely on the good side. Some on the maybe surprise side. Um, this is just um, they they released a form, uh, the eighty nine ninety five form, I believe it's called, which is a new form for that will actually use to compute the twenty percent deduction. A one ninety eight deduction. So in twenty eighteen we had the deduction, but it was just like a side schedule. There was actually not a separate form yet. They hadn't really basically the software they hadn't designed it yet. Well now for twenty nineteen we'll have a form, you know, with line numbers and kind of trying to lay out the calculations, which which are pretty complex. We've we've talked about that over the past year or so. So they released the form and it gives us kind of a window and the instructions to the form, a window into how to calculate it. And and one surprise was that I think surprised most people is is a charitable donation. So this would be, you know, if I own a S corporation say, and the S corporation makes a charitable donation, ultimately that will pass through to my personal tax return. And I'll deduct that on schedule A, it's called as a, it's a personal charitable donation, but the company actually made it right. And it just passes through. Well, most people were then wondering, okay, when I compute my, business net income that this 20% deduction is based on, does a charitable donation factor into that? In other words, is it part of business income? And most people were thinking, well, it's really not part of the business. You know, you're making this contribution, you know, for, for reasons, you know, you're not, you're not expecting anything back, right? It's, it's, it has to be, you know, for 
kind of non-business reasons in effect. So most people kind of assume that was, that was the proper, you know, understanding, but there was no guidance. Well, just in this instructions, which isn't, again, it's not real high, but just in the instructions, they mention that you should subtract um, a donation in order to compute your qualified business income. Now this, this is a bad thing, right? Because the lower our qualified business income is the less that 20% deduction is. So one of those weird cases where you don't really want it to be a deduction for this purpose, right? It's, it's, it's a separate side calculation. So that was a bit of a surprise um, and how you compute that. But again, just in a kind of a draft instructions, there were, there were situations last year where draft instructions would come out and then people would point out maybe inconsistencies and then they would get fixed. So, we're maybe hoping this this could get fixed. Right. Yep. Well, that'd be good. So we've been back and forth on this for a while. So this is oh, a yeah. big deal that we need to get get uh, figured out. It's kind of like that. You know, we kind of sort of have one ninety nine A. It's it's been figured out, and yeah. just, there's still stuff up there. So new on that. Yeah. So speaking of one ninety nine A, there you might remember this. There was there's a real question about what's what's a trader business. You know, because only a trader business is eligible for this deduction. And as much as you might think it's defined in code section 162, which is where the where they refer you back to, it really doesn't define what a trader business is. So in particular, in the context of rental businesses, right, you know, commercial property, residential rentals, you know, is that is that going to be eligible for this 20 percent deduction? Right. Or farmland rentals, you know. So they issued this safe harbor in January, the IRS did, that, again, wasn't real high, you know, not high priority guidance, but they said, here's some kind of factors that would definitely, like, make it very clear that you're eligible for, the, for this, you know, benefit, this deduction, you know, and one of them was, like, having 250 hours, you might remember some of this, and it didn't right. have to just be your, it could be your independent contractor's hours, your employee's hours, and you had to, like, sign a statement under penalties of perjury that, you know, you were keeping contemporaneous records. And so it was just some guidelines, basically. It's called a safe harbor. Well, on um, September 24th, they issued, they kind of formalized the safe harbor into a revenue procedure. And, you know, we're expecting changes, you know, and, and they changed a few things that you don't, it's no longer like a separate statement that you sign under penalties of perjury that these requirements, these requirements have been satisfied. Um, they're a little bit softer on the record keeping requirements for in particular, like for independent contractors where you don't really know, right. Cause the idea was, well, if I got to keep like a time log of myself, okay, that's, that's one thing, right. For my hours, but do I have to keep a time log for my, for independent contractors, you know, you know, the landscaping crew that comes in, uh, you know, if I own a building or something. And so they kind of softened that and said, you know, you don't maybe have to have quite as, as strict of record keeping there. Um, they also allowed, this is a little bit technical, but they allowed a, a one, one property that's both commercial and residential, right? Maybe on the first floor, it's commercial, you know, there's stores on the first floor, second floor is, you know, apartments or whatever, that that can be considered one enterprise and the 250 hours applies to that that entire building whereas before the literal reading of the safe harbor it was like well i could i only i need 250 hours for the first floor activity right the retail store the commercials the commercial property and then i need 250 hours for the second floor the residential and you know i don't have that many hours so so they did soften that a little bit but they did still keep the 250 hour requirement um you know, I think generally speaking, Casey, 
you know, it's, you can, this is just a safe harbor. You can meet, if you feel like you've got other facts, other circumstances that you can document that you are a trader business, you, it's, if I have 240 hours, you know, including my employees and independent contractors, it doesn't mean I'm out of luck. I've just got to document it in some other way. But what the IRS is trying to do is say, here's a safe safety net, right? That if, if you've got 250 hours and you meet these other requirements with the record keeping that you can get it. So they've softened it up a little bit, but probably most, most taxpayers aren't really going to use it too often. Um, just be particular, you know, depending on what, what properties you've got, but particularly in farming, it, it can be difficult if you're just a landlord to have the 250 hours, right? right? For a seasonal business, right? If you had, I think we talked about this, you know, if you have a cleaning crew coming in every week to your commercial property, you know, five hours a week, I mean, that's a huge, huge count to the hours, right? right. Versus if I'm running a seasonal business, that's only, you know, got two or three months of, you know, four months of landscaping services, then that's a lot different. So, so they gave us a little bit there, but most of the essence of the safe harbor was still still kept, and we just don't feel like it's going to get used all that often, um, just because it's a pretty pretty high standard, the 250 hours. Unless you can just obviously meet it, you know, you can go ahead and elect it. So, yeah, I mean, in order to get 250 hours a year, you'd have to have a like your, your cleaning crew example. That would be you know, a few weeks a year times and five. That's, much, that's it. That's what that's you need. Yeah. You got to have at least about four and a half to five hours. Yeah. So obviously for a seasonal, you know, seasonal business, it's not near as a lot harder and they don't have special exceptions, right? They're not, you know, it's hard to carve out a special, this is supposed to apply to like all rental, rental activities. And there's, there's obviously some, some hiccups in how to, how to define these rules. So. Yeah. Even if you lived in like Florida, for example, your landscape thing, yeah, you plant flowers. I mean, where you have a year round landscape type of gimmick. Yep. I think even then you'd be able to qualify for the 250 hours. You yep. really think about it. Yep. So that'd be tough. Now that is, a, that is a very, uh, a very tight, uh, yeah. that, that's going to be hard to, to take yeah. advantage. Now, again, there's other ways to qualify. We, we've talked about this in the past. And you know, if you've got related party rentals where, you know, you, you own, you know, both the land and the farm, you know, there's ways to kind of be able to pool that together and, and treat that, treat both things, treat the farm as a trader business, treat the landlord, you know, the, the rental income as a trader business. So there's, there's several other avenues, but, but the safe Harbor gets quite a bit of play because of the 200, you know, it's a very black or white, Hey, 250 hours or not. So. Yeah. Right on. Okay. So another thing that just came out, um, Yes. So the safe harbor was September 24th of the revenue procedure that kind of formalized it September 24th and September 26th, they came out with some new draft tax forms for like the S corp and the partnership. And in particular on the partnership, and again, these are draft forms. So could they change? Yeah, it's possible, but it gives us kind of a window into some new requirements um, that your basically your tax accountant is going to have to, you know, deal with on, on the form. And some of these are, you know, a lot of times these forms do not change very often. You know, it's, it's pretty, pretty standard, but, and most of these things, and I guess I'll say all of these things that I'm going to mention here, um, have nothing to do with 199A. So, you know, these are not just, some of these things are old things that they're just now finally uh, requiring us to, 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 to deal with. So there's some new questions. Um, one of the things is for a partnership, if you've got guaranteed payments, um, generally speaking, that's a way to pay like a, a wage to the partner and guaranteed payments for services. And then there's guaranteed payments for capital. 
that would be, you know, if, if I, I put in some money into the partnership and I, I'm, I'm guaranteed a certain rate of return on my equity contribution. So it's, it's really not technically like interest you pay to a bank, right? You know, a bank loans money and you got to pay them a certain amount. This is really an equity owner that gets a guaranteed payment for capital. Well, in the past, that was all lumped into like one box, I believe. Well, now it's very clear there's a box 4A for guaranteed payment for services. There's a box 4B for guaranteed payment for capital. Now, you might say, why does that matter? Well, what the IRS is trying to do with the interest expense limitation rules that are, again, just in proposed form is to treat guaranteed payments for capital as interest expense for the purpose of that 30% deduction, 30% of EBITDA rules. So while it's technically not interest under the rest of the code, right? I mean, interest has been around a long time. There's a definition of interest. It's not interest guaranteed payment for capital, but the IRS is trying to say it is for this purpose of computing 30% of EBITDA. And so they're, they're getting quite a bit of pushback on this, you know, attorneys and bar associations or, you know, providing commentary, but it's interesting that the full, this is the first year we've ever had this. Now we have a breakout of guaranteed payments for capital, guaranteed payments for services. Why are they doing this? Speculation is that they're going to hold tight to treating that guaranteed payment for capital as interest expense. So um, that's one thing. Um, they've got a number of questions on there about um, that are just, there's some disguised sale rules. Again, these are old rules. And they kind of say, hey, did you have this transaction, you know, in the last couple of years that, that it's, it's considered a disguised sale? So there's just, the bottom line is there's more information that's being provided on these tax returns for partnerships in particular. And that's because partnerships, we believe, are going to start getting audited more by the IRS. There's been some things they've done to, to allow that process to happen a little easier. So they're just requiring more information. Um, one thing that's really a pretty big deal um, that could really add to the, the costs and complexity of some tax return disclosures is it's called 704C, KC. And I'm sure you remember exactly what 704C is. Yeah. But, um, I do. Make sure to tell everybody. <laughs> yeah. So um, we talked about this, I'm uh, quite positive, last year, but it's a concept that um, the way I'll say it is if you have two partners, and they each bring a $250,000 tractor into the partnership, right? It's very clear it's worth $250,000, right? Just assume there's no question. And that's all they bring in, right? $250,000 tractor, each of them. So they're 50-50 partners, right? Now, let's say that the one tractor that partner A brings in, has he's fully depreciated that down to zero, right? There's nothing left on that. The partner B only depreciated $50,000 in the past. So there's still $200,000 of what we call basis left in that tractor, right? So that's going to be $200,000 of depreciation going forward. Well, under 704C rules, you would not allocate that depreciation. You know, it goes into the partnership. It's a partnership asset. You would not allocate that depreciation 50-50 because the one partner has already taken it. You would actually like specially allocate it, and there's complications around this. I'm simplifying it, but you would specially allocate that depreciation to the partner that still has has it left to go, right? So that's part of it. Now, here's probably the easiest thing to think about: if that partner A brings in that tractor, let's say it's a John Deere tractor, right? And partner B brought in a tractor, let's say it's you know, Case IH tractor. If that partnership sells that tractor two years later, the John Deere tractor, that entire gain let's say it's $225,000, that entire gain would go back to the original partner that put it in. 
you actually would not allocate the gain 50-50. So that's called 704C responsibility. Like it's like a tracking mechanism. Say, hey, you you put this tainted asset into the partnership, you can't get out of it that easily, right? And so the bottom line is the for the first time ever, we're gonna have to disclose that 704C responsibility every year, right? So Eventually, it'll. The bottom line is once once the red tractor gets depreciated down to zero, right? We'll allocate all the depreciation to that partner. Once you have both tractors depreciated down to zero, then you don't have any more seven hundred four C responsibility because everyone's equal, right? Then you then you can just say, hey, if we sell, it, everyone's equal. So we're going to have to actually disclose the amount of this like tainted gain that you brought into the partnership every year as like a record keeping like scorecard. Hey, this is your responsibility. If you get out, this is, this is your problem. So we've always had to compute this on the side, but we've never had to like put it in lights and, and provide it every year. So normally when you, when you form the partnership, you would have to check a box that you did put in a tainted asset. And here was like the original, you know, $250,000 taint on it, but you would never have to have an annual reporting then that would say, well, now it's 250,000. 200,000, then it's under, you know, you would just one and done. Now it's going to be every year. And they're in, in these more complex partnerships when different people buy in. Um, it, it's just, it's going to be pretty complicated um, because it's like a roll forward of that responsibility. I have 704C responsibility every year. So I do remember talking about this because I was, I was taken aback by the fact that the good stuff got got sent back to the original person that, that actually yeah. bought that. And then anything that was the new, yeah. Yeah. Anything bad, like anything that was associated with, with uh, a payment or something like that got divided up amongst the partners. And that's, that's the part that I, and there, yeah, there's different ways to do it. And, and then, you know, if those two partners then, you know, purchase a brand new track or a different tractor, you know, together after the partnership's been formed, then it's clearly 50, 50 for that. Right. You, you don't have. So. So basically, there's a lot of layers to this that I'm not sure they are. I mean, I think they understand it, but it could get really complex depending on how many new owners you've brought into the mix. So that's really going to be interesting if they keep that. But again, right now, that's what's on the K1 form. They've taken out. They've they've taken off a few things and they've put this on there. So uh, it's, it could really add to some cost um, for a partnership where people have got in at different times now if everyone came comes in at the same time and they put in cash equally, and that's still the, the partnership agreement today, you don't have any 704C stuff, but it's if you put in tainted assets and get new units, right? Or even if you put in cash after the fact, right? You know, five years after the partnership's been formed, you bring in a new partner and they put in cash, right? And everybody else has maybe value for things or the tractor's worth this, then, then you have to deal with this stuff. So it's pretty common now. In, in a lot of our partnerships, you know, to when you've got different investors and things. So it's going to be a big responsibility um, put on the tax repairs and the, you know, and the companies to, to report this information. Yeah. So would there be like in that scenario that you laid out there, is there any benefit to a retiring farmer partnering with a young farmer that, that could possibly take in over his operation and, and doing that partnership through those, that 704 scenario yeah it's a way and we, we i think we talked about this i mean it's it's all on how you look at it right it, so the 
the the farmer you know has a two hundred fifty thousand dollar tractor that's worth you know that's still worth two fifty let's say or it's you know been depreciated down to you know been economically depreciated down to two hundred fifty thousand but there's no tax basis in it if I sell that tractor right to this to my son or to some other person let's you know if we just say third party you know you're going to have a gain of two hundred fifty thousand dollars you know and generally speaking that's going to hit all in one year if you might remember this even if you say, Hey, I'm going to get paid over five years. You sell a tractor to somebody depreciation recapture, you get hit all in one year with the game. It's a real problem. So if you, in theory, if you form a partnership with somebody else, it's a way to maybe gradually recognize that gain because you're going to recognize the gain in effect by not getting any depreciation allocated to you. Right. So there are some ways to, I mean, it's, Remember the the person, you know, let's say the farmer, they've they've depreciated the tractor down to zero, so they've saved, you know, income tax, right? As a result of depreciating it down to zero, so if it's still worth two hundred fifty grand, that's going to come back to you, right? If you sell it, right, it's recapture. So um, it's it kind of makes sense. It's it's kind of a common sense, you know. You do, you don't want to shift some sort of, you know, if you bring some a problem to the table, it's your problem. You, there's really no way out of it. Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense. It's just now we're going to really be disclosing that to each partner, maybe reminding them, you know, Hey, I, they forgot that they, they have this quote, you know, 704 C responsibility. So, right. No, okay. I just, it just seemed like that might be a, a quick way to, yeah, maybe, especially if you're transitioning with the son or a hired man or whomever yeah. business after you retire, that might be an easy way to transition your assets over in, in, a, in a partnership. Yeah, there's different, we've talked about, you know, the difference between a, a partnership sale versus right. a partnership redemption. There, there's some, there's a lot, you know, you got to talk to your tax person on this, but yeah, it's, but generally speaking, farmers, if we've mentioned, you know, they've got two issues when they're close to retirement, they have a lot of grain on hand, right. That's worth some amount of money and there's no tax basis in it. Right. So if you sell the grain, it's a hundred percent gain. I mean, almost, you know, because you're their cash basis, and the other kind of tax problem is the equipment because it's worth something and probably it's depreciated almost down to zero. So both of those things, if you just sell those, you're going to have large tax liabilities to pay. So you try to gradually do it. There's some strategies. And then you've also got to watch your debt because, you know, you, if you got you to pay back your line of credit, right? And as we know, paying back a line of credit is not a tax deduction. So... You know, you've borrowed on that line of credit in the past to, to, to get tax deductions for your expenses, your fertilizer, your chemicals. And so then, you know, you, that, that, that borrowing wasn't income to you, right? You don't have to, but then when you pay it back, the result is, you know, it's the counter is you don't get to deduct that payment. So you got to be careful that your tax liability, if you got a fair amount of debt, you may, may have a big surprise on your hand that you can't, uh, can't cut the check. You don't have enough enough liquidity yeah no i get that so well good there's a lot of stuff going on out there glenn you got what else you got you know that's again i think that's pretty much it we've got another week and a few days here and we'll be able to kind of close the book on this year and but then you know hey we're already you know talking about tax planning obviously for 2019 and we just hope we get the rules on the it's called 163 j is the code section the interest expense limitation rules those we hope those come out in the next few months so that we we've got a lot more clarity because there, there's a number of questions uh, on how how all that works so yep. it's a time of uncertainty and you just have to you know we we try to educate our clients on as best we can and 
with the guidance that we have, knowing that, you know, it's, it's subject to change and, and, it, and it will change down the road. So, yeah. Yep. No, it always ever changing thing there. So, all right, Glenn, well, folks want to reach out to you and ask you some questions about the stuff we talked about today. What's the best way to do that? Yeah. It's best to call our office here at Heinold Banner to our phone number 309-694-4251. Or you can also look me up on Twitter at Glenn Birnbaum is the handle. Right on. And I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast, and you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also check out my website at movingironllc.com. So, Glenn, until uh, next time, have a good one. We'll catch you down the road, bud. All right, Casey. Thanks. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Mmm.